0: We'll see you know, about that. You know what I love about this moment? What? Being trapped between both of you, both of your pushiness. I love it. Yes, yes. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be very great.
1: I make the rules. This is not your shitty tennis podcast. Ah! Oh my God, it's <laughs> <such> an asshole. <laughs> Welcome to the Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello! Hello, hello. Oh, hey. How you doing?
0: Okay. There you are. Three,
1: two. So there's uh, very little new in my world. I went to Atlanta for the weekend uh, and didn't see or do anything. Oh, you just hung out with family? I uh-huh. hung out with family. I always tell people that I'm going to Atlanta for the weekend. But really, I fly in, get picked up by family, stay in their house the entire time, and then go back to the airport. I've only been to
0: Atlanta like four times in my entire life. Like, Have, have, have you not Atlanta? even gone, explored the city? I mean, I mean, it's like, no, the, no,
1: right? you know, I never have on my own. No. I mean, the two times I went there when I was younger, we were with family and we did all like the Martin Luther King stuff and like a whole bunch of other history stuff. And then one time I went to a concert, but we drove to there and we drove right back home. I've actually never been out in Atlanta. Isn't that weird? I've been there dozens of times. Dozens,
0: dozens, dozens. My
1: family says hi, by the way.
0: Oh, I I know. You know what? It's been a really long time since I've connected with the family. You've
1: got to get down there and see them. They miss you. I'm lazy. Um, but what did (laughs) you're honest? So
0: what
1: have have you been up to?
0: Well, you know, I went to Minneapolis this past weekend for a board meeting and, you know, it struck me when I was there after uh, I got a text from my sister and I was like, Oh yeah, I have arrived. Everything is good. And she's like, "Uh, did you go see, did you go to Paisley park? And I'm like, shit, no, I'm actually here. (laughs) It's the anniversary of Prince's death. And, I was stuck inside working all weekend. Can you go I to Paisley Park? Is it like Dolly I mean, land? Can you- I mean, I think you can, I, first of all, I think it's going to be converted into some sort of public space now because it really was his home. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be converted into some sort of public museum, something that you can access as, as um, from the outside. Mm-hmm. But I figured that with his death, you know, you know, now that people, first of all, let me just ask, have we always put things up in memorium spaces i felt like that came out of 911 i remember just that so clearly but i figured with his death people were putting up flowers or like signs are you or depending me like they
1: they people are still laying roses uh, like oh god here we go look everyone i don't know anything about the beatles i don't want to know okay mm-hmm. so just everyone relax <laughs> part in central park that has yeah. something to do with John yeah. Lennon or something yeah the
0: imagine yeah yeah whatever
1: I, was he killed there or it's just it just says imagine and people just whatever what <laughs> i honestly don't
0: know i don't there's know like a, there's like a garden there and then um you know there's like a, a little sign on the ground that says imagine and people, you know, do people pictures there? Pictures yeah people leave there
1: all the time i don't know if mem- i don't think in memorial, memoria mem- 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 okay it's like i'm rapping I don't think memorials started with nine eleven.
0: <laughs> I don't think they started with nine eleven, but I but I think that obviously they didn't start because I think people felt comfortable going into like um you know, cemeteries and leaving things. But yeah. I think the in the insertion of memoriams in public spaces, I think that's mm-hmm. somewhat new. Do you know what I mean? Like where it's just you know, there used to be like designated spaces, like a funeral home or this or that. But now I feel like people just kind of like I, I just see them everywhere. I, that, I I remember being struck by that at nine eleven. You know, people were leaving post-it notes at different spaces all over the city. You remember? Yeah. And it was just I mean so, because I mean we yeah. happen to be
1: here. I don't know what's happening in other parts of the country. But I feel like you can walk around to like any public part and there'll be a statue of somebody.
0: Yeah, but you know what? People don't you know. gather people well anyway I was just thinking well you know what I was like well people seem to really feel the need to converge on spaces and do things there and mm-hmm. I was hoping that I would be able to get myself there but I really didn't and I'm so annoyed by it so but I think you would go there and cry or something no you know what it is i mean it's more about you know it's so funny it's both about the person and about being in communion with others isn't it to be to 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 admit that we share something i think it's cuz we we're so separated from each other that anytime we have moments where we can come together and go, you cared about Prince too. I did too. And we can sort of look in sympathy at each other. I remember when I was traveling abroad and Michael Jackson died.
1: Yes. I remember that.
0: And I, I like had to go into the city to find some place where people were gathering. So I, I think I went to Trafalgar square and people were there and they were talking about him. And then I went by, they just so happened to have been like a musical about him. And I went to that site and, you know, people were had gathered there. So I just, I don't know, you know what I mean? There's just like this call when things go badly for you to go find a public space. So you just need
1: a place to grieve publicly to grieve together. Uh, <laughs> On the day Michael Jackson died, you called me and you're like, what's happening over there?
0: <laughs> I, did, You know, I felt so, you know what? I felt so disconnected. Yeah. Like, I I, I I, was like, what the fuck? I was like, I didn't want to be in the UK when Michael Jackson was dead. Because, like, of course they connected with him, but he was American. You know what I mean? And I was like, and I wanted to be in America. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I was I was thinking about Michael Jackson's death the other day because I'd passed the park that I happened to be in when I found out. And it was totally creepy when it happened because I'm, s- I'm sitting in the park and everybody's cell phone went off at the same time. Oh, I'll I never, for- I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that. It was the creepiest thing. Like, <laughs> it was a- and it was a nice day here in New York that day. Uh, everyone I was looking at reached into their pocket, their pocketbook, to pull out a phone at the same time. Yeah, I'll never forget. It was so weird looking. It was like a movie. I cracked open my flip phone because that's what I had back then. Flip phone.
0: <laughs> razor. <laughs> what? Oh my God. I love my red razor. I had a red razor. That was so great. I love that phone. I feel like, I talking not remember when, we're
1: already old, but I know. I remember the days of like, Plugging my phone in once and then just rolling with her for like two full days before I plug it in again. I'd be like, Blackberry, what what? Uh nowadays I've got as soon as I unplug it, it's like a countdown clock. I got like five hours until I've got to
0: get my next hit off the nearest plug. I know. You know what's On so funny? I I was walking down the street, I was crossing the street today, and I thought these two people were together. <laughs> I don't know why. They were both looking down at their phones. But they were walking comp they were walking fairly closely together. And then all of a sudden they you know, I got to the light and one went like this, split to the left, split to the right, and they both continued looking down at their phone. And I was like, why did I assume they were together? And it would have seemed inappropriate to me for them to actually be together because they both weren't talking to each other, but I'm so comfortable with that now. <laughs> I'm comfortable with seeing people's the top of people's heads (laughs) as they mosey through the world. It's kind of
1: crazy how comfortable we've gotten with that. My headphones broke today. Um, They're completely busted.
0: Mm.
1: So I couldn't listen to music. I'm sitting on the train. I'm looking around. And (laughs) it it dawned on me that that's how I used to pick up guys on the subway. (laughs) Like looking around, making eye contact. But it's no longer possible. No one is looking around.
0: No, everybody's looking
1: at something yeah, else. Yeah, it's uh, it's astounding, really. No one is looking around. Which I mean, I, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm like, you might want to look around your surroundings. You know, a lot of shits happening on the New York subway, like that crazy woman who threw crickets on everybody. Um, oh, what? Yeah, that was a couple months ago. It's just.
0: But you know what? I'm I'm, also, I'm actually always slightly. Um, I'm I'm one to pay attention to my phones, but not when I'm on public transport. You know how you said that we adjusted to something? Do you think we could unadjust to it? Do you think there could be like a moment where we're suddenly like not glued to our phones? Could we go back Um... or not, not, not go back, but maybe go even in a different direction? You know, that's a great
1: question. And I'm gonna bring in our special guest so we can discuss that question. I think that'd be great. So caller, are you there? Yes, I am here. Yes, uh, everyone, please welcome Cordell to the Outrageous Podcast. And
2: the <laughs> 10 of you, as you have... Every- <laughs> as yes, you our 10s of <laughs> listeners...
0: Oh my God! Why do you come in like that? He came in so very harsh. Negative.
1: Very <laughs> negative.
2: I, I, I <laughs> let me just say, let me just say, I am one of those ten, and I've always been one of those ten. You so, have been. Always been. Our, you are a very loyal yeah. listener, and it we is. appreciate it. And I so let's see. Below. And I comment below.
1: You do yeah, comment. Let's see if your guest hosting is better than Jessica's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jessica, who refused to reappear on the podcast, uh, (laughs) as she said at the end of the last podcast, that she wasn't sure how she felt about it. So,
2: Jessica. (laughs)
0: Let
2: me just just put down my baby here. My edges might be snatched. (laughs) I'm
1: ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. So we're just going to throw you right in the middle. Uh, Trisha and I were just talking about how everyone's on their cell phones nowadays. And we to ask the question, though, because I was saying how like you get on the train, everyone's looking at their phones, right? Nobody's making eye contact. No one's looking around. And Trisha had asked, is there going to be a moment in time where we get back to actually interacting with people, maybe not talking to them, but looking at each other on the train? Like, will we break the curse of the phone? What do you think? Can we ever move backwards or no?
2: no because i think um well we never really looked at each other when we didn't have phones i would say in new york city there had to be a spectacular something spectacular spectacular happening on the train for us to even engage with anyone there we <laughs> just sort of like staying our well, zone in our safe space i mean it's true well, because, yeah because not engage because engaged, had, you're not trying to engage any of these people in the subway exactly at least like,
1: assume- look around
2: yeah, you look around to make sure I'm on the I'm I in the car with the bum?
1: Yeah.
2: Am I smelling anything? Um is there about to be a situation here? And where can I find it? But as soon so, as you find it, you okay. uh you're dialed into your book, into your iPod or uh, whatever music you have, and you were not really engaging in anyone. You weren't saying hello to anyone or anything of like that sort. Okay, so first of all. I don't know
1: how your other podcast with Trisha goes, but we don't call them bums here. We, <laughs> we call them homeowner challenge.
0: <laughs> oh my god! No,
1: we're so. not doing
0: that. No, but you know what? I mean, I think you you know you make a fair point. I guess in some ways the cell phone is just another thing because what did we right. have before? We had um, we did have our Walkmans. So I guess we. You know what's so funny? I guess we have always no,
2: hold on. That was, that was before 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 then. You had, yeah. you had iPods, then you had this man before that, then you had Walkmans, and then you had big boombox radios, you know, with breakdance oh, and whatever.
0: And a book. Well, fine. So, but
2: the and thing you've is, always had like, books and newspapers.
1: Sure, sure. But the difference between all those things and, and phones today is that two of your senses are taken up because people yeah. are looking at the phone and listening. So yeah. it's like, like literally, anything can develop six, seven feet away from you, and you won't know. You can always look up from a book, and you do yeah. every time you pass a stop. You know, every time someone gets on, you think is cute. Oh, look at that jacket. Oh, look at those shoes. Like you're looking around. Yeah, but that just never happens. Like, and I, I'll be the first to say I'm guilty of it. I will get on the train at 59th Street and end up all the way down at Brooklyn Bridge, and I never looked up once. Like I get in, sat down. <laughs> I count the stops, and I get up and go. And I, I couldn't tell you. Like, it's I've had so people, scary sounding. It's right. terrifying, really, when you think about it. It's, it's really so, I mean, terrifying. I mean,
2: but yes and no, I mean, I hear all that. But you have to understand, also, a lot of people are sitting there waiting for a moment to happen on the train that they can record. So <laughs> their senses are very much alert. They're just waiting for a quote-unquote situation to happen. Quite recently in New York City, a woman got went went onto the subway track to get her phone, and the train came into the station, and she was trapped. Oh yeah, I between the train and the platform, there is no space, oh. so she was literally cut in oh. half, and her body is in shock that she doesn't really necessarily register the pain. That people are recalling the entire incident.
0: So she so died, right? Died, I mean, treasure. Yeah, well, I was just trying to figure so, it out. I mean, I mean, she was cut so, in half. Oh my god! All to save her phone, right? Oh, Look, just save her phone. Let right. me tell you this. I'm just gonna,
1: I'm just gonna be real right now. My 800 fo- dollar phone falls onto the tracks. I'm getting it. It's 800 motherfucking
2: dollars.
0: Uh, is your life worth just that little? Um, I'll be okay. You, know, you call someone.
2: Yeah, and they go get it for you. No,
0: they don't. They <laughs> don't. That's a lie.
1: They will not get it. That is not their priority. If you call them, they don't give a shit. Plus, I mean, look, I'm just saying.
2: Well, yeah. wait, check the time, see when the next train is coming in, and then go get it. If <laughs> I'm not
0: doing it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm telling we you have, that right um, now. A
1: lot of stations have countdown clocks now. I just be like, okay, well, I have four minutes to work this out.
0: Oh, my God. I was like risk a- it. I wouldn't risk it. But you know what's so funny? Most people who get down there don't have to worry about coming back up.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's dark. That's it's dark,
0: dark, but that's true.
2: <laughs> God damn you, Phil. Wow. <laughs>
0: well,
2: let's just say they never live to regret it. Oh, oh man. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, that was cheery. Hey. uh, (laughs) Good way to segue into topic. Yeah, let's let's jump into some fun topics. Oh, I've got a fun Mm -hmm. one for you guys. So um, as we all waited this past weekend as France had their presidential election, and the results were not favorable for left-minded like people. Uh, Marie Le Pen forced a runoff with the centrist candidate, whose name I forget, and Emmanuel Macron. Macron. Oh, Macron! Yeah. oh, oh, I'd like two of those. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> Le Pen heads up the far right contingent, uh, which is bent on cracking down immigration, removing France from the Le EU Front National. And, and being terrible in general. Uh, I spoke to my friends in France and they seem very sure that Le Pen will lose, but Uh, but that tune (laughs) sounds really familiar. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So I I don't really know how to, how to take that there. So, uh, you know, in preparing for this podcast tonight, I was like, we should talk about politics because we haven't for a long time, but frankly, politics is terrifying and exhausting. Like I, I, with, with Trump over here, I feel like there's no good angle We usually get a good angle on this stuff, and I just feel like we don't have one. Like, I feel like every powerful country is fleeing from globalism as fast as they can. And in stark contrast to, you know, the Obama administration, but also a lot of things are happening in Europe and South America from the 90s on. Like, there was a swing to the left. And I think what, what I'm most afraid of is that World War 3 isn't going to be country versus country. It's going to be white populations versus the non-white populations in their own countries in some sort of like mass, terrible genocide of the dark people. My, my question is this. Do we have time for the pendulum to swing back left? Because white populations and white supremacists would more, they would rather blow up everything than allow people of color at the table. Can we wait for the pendulum to swing back left? What do we do in this time? And another question that came up with some other friends of mine, where is this generation's like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Gandhi or one of these people who stands up and goes, this is wrong. This is why let's fix it.
2: What are we going to do? I mean, what you you bring a very interesting point of view, but I would say in, let me go back when, in terms of where you started with France. The interesting thing in France is that this has happened before in France to a certain extent. Um Le Pen's father was running the Le Front National and he was preaching the same thing. What She worse. has done this summer round. Right. She has rebranded it. In fact, he got to the runoff stage I think like fifteen years ago. And then people weren't coming out to vote. And then he decided to overplay his hand and speak of putting people on trains and that just brought the Holocaust all over again. And then French people just ran out and out to the post to vote and he lost, but he always ran as a, um, uh, protest candidate, basically just to upset the avocado. He was not necessarily interested in power. He just wanted to, you know, be just shake things public. up and be yeah. terrible in public and allowed. So, but she's quite different. She has rebranded the organization. She's kicked him out to a certain extent. I know in, in her runoff being in the runoff position, she has given up presidency of the organization, so she can so whereas French people like to think it's not possible, the issue is that she has been that she allowed to get there that position, which is the same thing with with, with um trump
1: well let's let's zoom out from france because if mm-hmm. we we if we settle in and talk about france, we can get all the way into it but what i'm what i'm what I'm referring to is so sort of there's a there's a worldwide tick to the right. I mean, Britain leaving the EU, all the problems that we're having over here, inclu- including what's happening in France and in other mm-hmm. countries. Trisha had this how do we question, fix it too? How, not how do we fix it, but where are we where do we look for something to sort of be the opposition? Because I don't see a lot of opposition to these ideas and these changes in
0: politics. I think part of the challenge here is that. I think the, the overt racism actually gets in the way of, 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 of opportunities for um, opposition, because I think what's really happening for people is that the the sort of global economic push that the Brits, the Americans and major and maybe the, all the major world powers, mo- but most of the Brits and the Americans and the frenchies, their approach. To their economy, both local and globally, has created the mess that we're in. And rather than people look to the policies and the um, and the people who really got us in this mess, there we're looking to the wrong source. So. What I feel like these people have succeeded in doing is making us look towards immigrants, look towards the poor, look towards the brown as the reason for the mess that we're in, as a scapegoat, failing to see that we're all in the same place except for the one percenters. Like, it was interesting. I, I mean, the reason why I've, I'm coming here is, like, I, I I just so happened to be on the train today, and I was listening to NPR, and they were doing one of those pieces where it was about these, like, m- one of these American towns that, you know, lost its way, right? What I love, first and foremost, what I loved about the piece was they waited all the way to the end to remark on the fact that the town was um, overwhelmingly white, and that back in its heyday, the mayor and the sheriff were KKK men, but Nonetheless, you know, so what but what when I when they were sort of detailing all the things that went wrong with that town and how that town overwhelmingly voted for Trump because Trump said that he would bring them back to the past. And the whole time I'm listening, I'm like, but Trump and all and his ilk and the people who sort of like preyed on the financialization of everything, they're the reasons why you're here. So for my mind, I feel like we, I feel like most of the people, like the people who voted for Brexit, probably the people who are pissed off in, in France now, they're not identifying the real causes of their um, disenchantment and the problems of the world. They're, they're scapegoating brown people and not seeing that, no, this was the moneyed class that got us here. Attacking, yes, us, which, is all,
1: which is always the case. I mean that's always always the case case, since feudal days, right?
0: Exactly. And it's like, but this time around, immigration has sort of brought that issue up to the forefront more more compellingly in people's mind. And so it's like, yes, if we could just stop those people from coming in. So there's like there are these clear-cut problems that are arising in the country that makes it really convenient for us to sort of point to the brown people. But It's such a distraction. And that's all I kept thinking as I listened to the program. I kept thinking to myself, you and I are in the same position. We are both stuck in jobs. We're both stuck in a stagnant economy. And you've decided that Trump was going to solve your problem for you. Mm -hmm. But all he's going to do is continue to hasten the very problem that you have, which was the fact that this was a glass company that got bought up and broken apart by wall street and tossed aside really and so the company completely underemployed the town the town went from five thousand people being employed to 900 people being employed you know and so and and actually the town was made essentially of that company it was the center of everything it was the center of civic life it was the center of everything and with the gutting of this company everything went out of that town right? No contributions to the arts. Everything just went away. And now the town is completely overrun with drugs and all kinds of issues. Traditional problems that we saw in the inner city in the 90s and the 80s when Reagan went crazy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I feel like what you have is like, I feel like what's happening is all the problems that we saw in inner city communities, quote unquote, inner city communities in the 80s and 90s, are being revisited in other places. But Black people knew why it happened. And to this day, now that it's sort of like ricocheting into white spaces, they're still making the wrong conclusion. They're still not seeing it. And so, so that's by, but that's by design. So. But it, it's by is, is it <laughs> is it by de- is it by design or is it by their own blindness? Is it their no, but it do they not I want think... to see that they themselves have been betrayed? It was fine and convenient for them to judge it as our problem. You know, the reason why you're falling into drugs is because there was some flaw in you. Now we have white communities overrun by drugs and then now everybody's like, Maybe it's something systemic. Well then what's the next step? Why can't we make that well, next leap? Well, as we
2: as before I was thinking we were talking about this, I, two things because why they why they would be blind is because with the there must be some sense of influence and superiority. That's what has always been sold to white people. Even when you're broken nothing, you need superiority. You you your superiority is still intact over other classes and over other people. But I think to go back to Chris's original question and part of what you were saying. I think how we need to frame the situation is not be distracted by the immigration and the racism, yep. but frame the problem and the solution as economic, Yep, because that is what it totally is. Um, if you go back to Martin Luther King, he, as they shot him, that's what he was talking about when he brought poor people to Washington. He framed the situation as an economic situation the so
1: problem then he had to
2: die but that's why i'm saying
1: it's yeah, by that, design
2: because because trump
0: would be but continue, he but would, he only the, got there later right as cordell cordell's, yes, cordell's he, making a good point like the initial piece was like the racism right that's what he starts on but eventually he comes to this place where he realizes that there's a platform that unifies all of us
2: was, right exactly because workers, the initial approach for the initial approach for king was to alleviate the immediate problems that was happening in this talk right Jim Crow. That mm-hmm. was problematic. And that was creating havoc because that had economic repercussions, right? Jim Crow had economic realities. Not mm-hmm. just you can't drink at this water fountain. You can't have you can't have this job. You can't yeah. buy this thing. Your housing prices are much higher than this. We don't go displaced. You can't buy these things, etc. But when he said framing the situation as an economic problem, that this is basically economic, but but it but it's so America, right? It's so, historically, America, at every major junction, there is that moment where whites, poor whites, and people of color can come together. Just but before
1: slavery at, became, But it's always at that moment where something happens that drives them
2: further apart. That's why I'm well, saying... class. the money class, like, the money class is, then tells them... So Say it's, the it's by design, yeah. It's a superiority, right? It's a superiority. You can't work because in just before slavery became big in America, tobacco farmers and blacks work together side by side. Yep. But then the money class came in and said, "Nope, this can't be. You're white and therefore you're much more superior." Even though you're making you're making your your conditions are similar to a certain extent. But then we have to create this whole other class of people and then push slavery into this whole big madness. It's not that slavery was ever any good, but it became this this situation where whites even though they're poor they're elevated and they then feel that superiority and never mind that their economic conditions were not that far off of slavery, not their physical condition, but their economic condition, they were starving. They were having problems in getting.
0: And that's what I'm the saying. Money you look at this town and, and, and any other town exists just like it. Think about any place that we've ever heard about where the economy is completely gutted. Mm-hmm. We're in the exact same position. You yourself are trapped why would you fall for the convenient argument that an immigrant is, is at fault?
1: Well, because Cornell already said it always works. It always works.
0: But I don't understand why it works now, because it's clear. It's clear right now that if you get rid of all the immigrants, your industry is still gutted. The reason why that, the reason why that town lost its primary industry was because of Wall Street bankers who basically bought up this, co- this, this company and took it, broke it down. Who's responsible for that? Is that an immigrant but issue? But poor white people don't <laughs> hate rich people. Yep. They ah, don't. Poor ah, white let's... people think
2: that there is only a matter of time, and perhaps poor people in general, but particularly poor white men are of the opinion they're only temporarily poor. Mm-hmm. There will come a time that situation where they would be above and they would get access to that money. Even though money begets money. So all of these false trope play into their mind constantly. It plays in, the system is set up in that way. Trisha, we talked about the prosperity gospel before. Like this is is baked into religion.
1: This is why people voted for Trump. Even though he's grabbing women's pussies and doing all this stuff, people believe because he is rich, he has done something correct. Exactly. Hard work. Not even just hard work, but he's done something morally correct yeah but, gifted with billions of dollars
0: but you see this is what see then i think about the french thing and i think about all the question you're asking and even brexit right mm-hmm. there are policies and government officials and people who set this all in motion you know what i mean so there that if people set it in motion other people can unset it But I feel like at this point in time, we have gotten to the point where people don't actually recognize that their government has a responsibility to them Mm -hmm. to craft laws and craft uh, policies that will be beneficial to you as a group of people. We, we now have believed, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand how we've gotten so far from that because now there's such a like a general cynicism towards the role of government period, but realistically, government action is the only it's the only engine we have as groups of people what else do we have like even in a protest that's what we do like Money. even but no but that's even what we have. but even with martin luther king what was he attempting to do change policy change laws impress upon people the role government has to have in their lives like if we don't have that what do we have? And so to my mind, what's really scary about this period is that the engine and the thing that we have in play to change our lives, we've made people cynical about.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, not to get back into French, but this is almost like we're asking a similar situation that happened in the French Revolution, basically, right? Who gets the control, the manner? Is it the people having a proper government or is it some ancient regime that's there? Now, what is happening right now is that the money class always wants to restrict the government, right? Because the government restricts them. Yes. And they feel since they're in their mind, we're the smarter ones, we're the one with the money, we're the one controlling the situation. But in our society, we still don't give proper reverence to the laborers, to the ordinary man. We, we constantly see the ordinary man as a cog in the wheel yep. and not necessarily the actual wheel. In yeah. fact, when it should be that, the mm-hmm. money class is the cog in the wheel. You can't do anything without the people. Mm-hmm. So we Oops. have this situation. You're starting to race, sound like a little bit of a Marxist. I like this. <laughs> Where are you going, No, I agree with Andrean here. It, it is the government responsibility. We need government to safeguard our rights. We need government to basically set up social policies that could benefit us all. Because the way in which without government, clearly as we, as we restrict the role of government and as we restrict these social policies, we're left out in the dark as an individual, and we cannot make it on our own. Okay, We and just cannot. not see, this is that's what's, where this we're
0: going to end up, though. Do and this, this is what I terrifies
1: mean? me about this right. point. Like, this period is very scary because of what you said, Tricia, right? King and activists in the past have been trying to force the government to act correctly, have people put their faith in not only in the current government, but the government could get better. But for the past 10 years in American government, there have been lawmakers and quote-unquote politicians moving towards the, uh, making, sure, making sure the government does nothing,
0: yeah. making
1: sure that nothing occurs. And now this period with Trump, Trump worked very hard to have people doubt the legitimacy of our elections and yeah. our democratic process. Yeah. And with his constant... <laughs> assault on facts and bringing up strange conspiracy theories and just, just saying things out loud that don't make sense, as it were, he's attacking the very foundation of the only thing we have to make people's lives better.
2: But so why, while, but why okay. he's doing this is because there is so much money to be made in this void, in the Absolutely. void of a proper structured government. So, we're, looking, so
1: we're looking at a return to feudalism. That's what it is. It's like it's keeping everyone dumb and docile. And the idea that you have to just work until you die. There'll be no escape from it. And there's no one to appeal to except for these moneyed classes. It sounds like a crazy pipe dream. But I've been been jumping up and down. I've been being the Cassandra, shouting at people. You have no (laughs) idea how close our way of life is to ending. We're right on the razor's edge here.
0: Well, I mean, see, this is the thing. This is why I don't, and I think this is why now I understand when Barack Obama gave his closing speech before he left office and he was trying to remind people that this is a real threat to our democracy, not just because, you know, Trump seems like a totalitarian or any of that necessarily, but because what he's done is actively moved us to a place where we are cynical about every aspect of the thing that protects us. It's, and that's exactly what's going on in France, right? People are like, oh, they're, people are looking to the anti-establishment. What is the establishment if not the government? So this notion <laughs> then that you have to be anti, the government is a reflection of us as a group. That is the social contract that we have. The constitution mm-hmm. is the is like the most concrete representation of the social contract that we have together as a group. And because you've had some poor politicians and people who are manipulative or done all kinds of things, it doesn't mean that we throw that thing entirely out. And what Trump and his ilk and everyone else has succeeded in doing is really convincing people to get rid of or to basically dismiss the very protection that they have. So by by Trump saying, well, less and less and less and less government, you're right, Cordell. The reality is less and less government means more more and more freedom for the moneyed class to do whatever the hell you want what they want to do and what's interesting is people have bought into that because they've decided that their only role in the the world is a worker like I, I'm just doing this for jobs. That's what they allow themselves to believe. Like they traded in on all sorts of principles and ideologies, supposedly. If you If you want to believe that rhetoric, that it wasn't the racism, it was the promise of jobs. So then your your remark, Chris, about feudalism then arises, because then it's like, well, you just wanted this so that Trump can guarantee you a job, and if he's if in coal. And if he was just going to offer you a job, then it was okay for you to trade a job for all the other rights that that comes with
2: being exactly.
0: having meanwhile, a functioning so you, government. Like, exactly. I don't even understand that. So you, you
2: get that job, and meanwhile, you don't try to get a job in cold, mind you, yeah. in bloody cold, <laughs> but you don't try to guarantee that you're going to get actual health care to deal with yep. the black lung that you know you will get.
0: After you have coal, so exactly. I mean that that that's that, So that's why I feel like the equation is so wrong. The equation that have has been proposed to people is faulty.
1: I'm going to ask the big question, and you guys are going to solve all the problems. Ready?
0: Mm-hmm. Easy. Got it.
1: Here Easy. we are. Here we are again. We we end up here. We've been coming back to this space for hundreds of years, right? Where the money class has created this sort of class war, race war, religious war, whatever they need to do to stay into power right? The entire world is under the sway. And like I said, we are very close to our way of life ending. Uh, Occupy Wall Street tried very hard to ring that bell to let people know, listen, This is about money. It's always been about money. And there's far more of us than there are of them. Years before Occupy Wall Street, Howard Zinn, in the last chapter of his book, predicted Occupy Wall Street and this current moment. And he's the one who said that at some point, the 99%, which is what he said in his book, the 99% will realize that they are the keepers of this jail and they can let themselves out at any time.
0: We've (laughs) known this. We've always known this. So what do we do now? Where do we go? You know what? I've been thinking a lot about this, actually. I've been thinking about how politics is playing out in the U.S. And I've been thinking about the battle, the battle lines that are being drawn in the Democratic Party, the Bernie people, the whatever people, all of that stuff, you know, and, and the rush the rush to, to try to find the white working class and try to convince them of something, mm-hmm. right? That's what he's doing. Bernie's trying to get the white male. I just, you know, I mean, there's a part of me that really recognizes, and I understand when people say the women are the future, because the future is female. I think we, I think, just like the women were the ones that tipped the scale in this election, mm-hmm. I think that's where our connection lies, white women. I think. Oh we, God! I know, I, I know. know. Let me make my point quickly. Part of the thing that we have to understand is that the white female is actually the most vulnerable economically, right? Left on on her own, she's making far less money. The world is very unfair to her. We have to make that intersectional connection for her. Because if we can make that intersectional connection, I think we have room to shift the livers. White men will always try to maintain that supremacy, White women think that their supremacy lies with connection with their men. It doesn't. It does not. I think they are the, they're the vulnerable link that we have to try to create a connection with. It will not be white men. It just cannot be.
2: Um, historically, white women have thrown us under the bus.
0: Mm-hmm. Up,
2: gone back. Gone
0: back
2: over. That's I true. Our house down got out of the days. bus. Make, Got out, burn a house, call nine one one. The back of our I net. know,
0: but but not white men, right? We've never even had a chance to engage white men. They but,
2: don't even. But you them. are right. You are right. And interesting enough, white women have the power to vote because of black men. Frederick yeah, Douglass. Google yeah. it, people. Google it. But I would say you make a convincing, sober argument. I agree. But I would add to that we, as you point, we I think Occupy Wall Street. Yes, that step and it all has to be gradual step right it can't be it wouldn't necessarily be a big explosion but i think we do have to go back to that argument we have to bring home the point that everything racism slavery these things were all built on economic principles these things were not just built out of a vacuum because oh i see a black man i hate him that was just the tool used to drive it home and to keep it as it is it was all built on an economic principle Slavery as it exists then only ended because of economics. It started because of economics and it ended because of economics. Not humanitarian reasons. We're like, oh my God, we have been pained by the horrors <laughs> of slavery. And then you're enacted Jim Crow law soon after. So we yeah. have to frame, constantly frame this problem within an economic um, equation and not get sidetracked by the racist rhetoric, because I think people just like to highlight. Oh, it's been reported as being racist, uh, and then we can still actually we can actually still make those arguments that when you continue to put marginalized group and economically disenfranchised group, we all can be at the table equally, and we all can contribute equally, and we all can grow it grow it together. Because when you like basically redline minority communities. They can't grow, crime flourishes in those areas. And what and you what is what has happened to us is happening to you now. Mm-hmm. White people, your neighborhoods are being decimated now because
0: exactly. of Exactly. This drought, was the 80s and the 90s. You've seen this people. before.
2: Exactly. So it's not a race issue. It's <laughs> clearly not racism, because you are not racist, clearly, according to you. And you're having the same problem. And even much more the numbers are far more staggering, according to the polls and everything for you. So it's clearly isn't economic. We have to, I think that's the only way we can make any headways. We have to constantly frame these issues within economics because every time you look at any of these problems, as Trisha pointed out, there is always money involved. There is always money to be made. And the 1% has figured out, let these fools scramble over racism and all this isn't bullshit while I go cash some checks. And they have to work for me. All right. below so, so i
0: mean so we're unified but, as workers i mean oh my god marxism was right we, we all <laughs> the one thing that connects us all is that at the end of the day we're going to be working for somebody else yeah
1: so that's it we got to figure out i mean that was really helpful guys but I, i'm just discouraged because i feel like well, this this we always end up here isn't it like we always end up like yes it's economic it's economic I just but don't our don't fates know are know.
0: intertwined. This is they what always this is
1: have but, been.
0: But you know what? Listen though, they always have been. However, think about it. I think the eighties and the nineties and the Reaganomics—that the policies of Reagan should point us to what was going on. So if you think about how Reagan decimated black and brown communities, right, and then you think about the ensuing policies that now are finding their way into white communities people we have to begin to make that connection that it has nothing to do with racialized you know what i mean it's not race you know it's like it's not that you are weak now that your your brother is addicted to drugs do you now understand that your brother is addicted to drugs because there's no employment for him so maybe Mm -hmm. that was what was going on in other communities. communities Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, let's make that, l- I think there's, there's room, we've experimented with so many pieces. Now the question becomes, how do you put those pieces together?
1: Yeah. You've yeah, because, seen I mean, the, so much-
0: yeah, but a part of what's great is, I mean, which is horrible, sorry. I mean, white people are now seeing the decimation of their own small communities, small towns, urban all spaces. all of the horrible
2: pictures in- that they had of black mothers, with the cat babies and whatever, they're dropping down in Walmart and their baby is standing there. And you know what's even more sad? Is that there's someone there to film the incident and not help. Mm. That's what, there is someone to curate this whole, which is exactly what white people did in black neighborhoods. They Mm -hmm. went to the neighborhood, they filmed the crack baby, they filmed everything and didn't help. They just curated the entire moment. No, they're literally curating themselves and they can't make that connection. Actually, they don't want to make that connection because to make the actual connection to the economics would change their ways. But um, interesting, that you should say, in one of the Scandinavian countries, I don't know which one, it might be Sweden or Norway, but they're experimenting with giving every citizen a set amount of money every month.
0: Yep, universal basic income.
2: And see how that works. I don't know. I think they're doing it on a small scale, And then see how that would work out. And,
0: you know, this is, I mean, this is where racism takes root, right? When it devastates us, you think it's about something internal to us. Now that you are being devastated, you might want to extrapolate that it's a systemic issue. And I Mm -hmm. think that's my, I mean, that's really, in some ways, that was probably the tension with Bernie. Do you know what I mean? That's what, that's my problem with the post- election haze that we're in now where that fight between bernie and the other is happening and bernie's still trying to chase the white male and Mm -hmm. he's now trying to compromise on women's rights i'm like no come back you know but um but you know what maybe if he takes that position he'll agitate enough women that we will maybe be able to see this class of women recognize that there's a continuity between. Black, white, brown women. And maybe we might be able to see that connection happen there around women's rights, around reproductive rights. Maybe that's the platform on which we might be able to come together and see some movement. We've got to find a common strain, right? We have to. We have to.
2: I mean, uh, I'm kind of I'm still queasy about <laughs> white women as a whole being at the front of this organization.
0: No, not they front. To, they just have no. to be part of, not front. There's no I, front here. I, 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 I think
2: I think they have to earn their place in there. They have to tr- prove themselves to be trustworthy, because I I think that every time we make any successful gain happen, they're gonna run back to the white man and fuck us over.
0: Well, any successful and gain ends, ends, ends up ends up. Is actually for them. Think about it. All affirmative action. Who benefited most from affirmative action True. policies? It's white women. White women. So any successful gain actually has been their benefit. It's because they have not had their eyes. I don't uh, open on in that party. way. So, they haven't had that, so their have to, eyes so they, open.
2: So to they see have to be that. educated on this matter.
0: Well, I mean, okay. uh,
2: good they, luck
1: they, there. You know, whiteness <laughs> <don't> <laughs> is a hell of a drug. It is. And, it is. and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is that white women exist in that they exist in the area where they white men allow them to get close enough to power, but keep them away. Um, and it's the white women's job to make sure that no one else comes close. Right. Yeah. Right. They to be desperately they're, Yeah. They're trying very desperately to hold on to their part, their part of the table. And they know that being women. Right. They're barely allowed access. The only thing that allows them access is their whiteness. So believe me, white women feel a particular kind of way about uh, Latinx and Black and Asian and all all sorts of women coming together. They feel a particular way about it. I'm not saying every, calm down, white women listening. I'm not saying every (laughs) white woman. But I'm saying, but that's the way the power structure has been set up by white men who are chortling, you know, while smoking their stogies. I don't know what white men are doing. They're all drinking brandy in their... Well-appointed studies. But my point being, my point is, I mean, like you, Cordell, I am disheartened by the fact that, that white women have to play any part of this as a whole, because white women as a whole are very slow, and they will be slow to join a movement like this. They benefit from white men's success. They are not going to go after their fathers, their husbands, and their sons. They're not going to put those three those people in a disadvantage.
2: And and, and interesting enough, they have historically they have never led a protest movement a charge. They haven't really.
1: Suffrage, um, the suffragette movement was all white women, and they were, you know, the well, 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 (laughs) the white women made they made a deal. They advocated that people women of color would not vote in in order for white men to accept any part of their movement. I mean, that in and of itself shows you exactly the kind of deals that white women as groups make when they right. lead
2: after a movement. After being propped up, being pushed out there by black and by the, by, by people of color. Yes. Because people pushed them in that movement. They yes. thought that they had an ally there. And, and that's why I'm frightened. It's not that I think white women are evil. It's that historically... You have never proven yourself to be trustworthy. And
1: historically, they, they have the most to lose, lose of any group. They have the most to lose by a, any movement. What do you
0: mean most to lose? They don't have the most to lose.
1: Who does? White men?
0: Oh, you mean of, you're talking about within white people. I'm. Well, think about it, right? Because black and brown women have the most to lose. We have nothing. No, they already have nothing. Right. I mean, in right. an illusion of power. You're right. In the illusory world where they imagine they have some sort of power, which their men are willing to take and and, and, and take back and from them any moment. before them. Yeah. But I mean, but if you want real power, but I mean, this is why I think it's really interesting that the battle, like one of the battle lines right now is reproductive rights. Is that battle, is that struggle strong enough to unify all women?
2: Well, you see, the, the problem, but you see, that's another issue too, because- this whole abortion issue, that's being framed incorrectly in my mind. They've been thinking this is the sanctity of life. They're not concerned about life because as soon as you pop out that baby, they don't care about health care, they don't care about welfare, they don't care about you running off to fight a war. What is happening here is that they're being tricked to think that it, it is an issue. But what it is is just to put more babies out there just to get more white babies.
0: Exactly. I don't, It's an economic it's, thing. It's, it's, it's an economic
2: thing. It's, it's a racial... Cl- exactly.
0: Ugh. It's just Don't for the labor
2: force. So again, we, we go back to we have to frame this situation in an economic. Uh, um,
0: okay, framework. forget white women. Maybe let's make it about workers.
1: It's poor white people. It's it's going to be it's going to be the lower middle and the middle class. That's the lower middle and middle class white person who is close <laughs> enough to access and power to frame it in a particular way. Uh, and then they could frame it for their poorer cousins, but I think that 's where the changes have to come from. This economic argument that we that, that we can make um, is going to be made to those communities ravaged by um, uh, unemployment, ravaged by heroin and drugs. Um, yeah. and then they can take the message it 's just I listen.
0: It's not the immigrant though. It is not no, your immigrant. It's not, neighbor. it's not the immigrants.
1: But you know what the thing is is like the, the what's very disheartening about that is just um it's hard to trust white people to lead a movement like that.
0: I don't say lead. Why do you guys automatically assume it's leading? Well, they maybe don't lead the They yeah, have to participate. participate. Yes, they not lead. They, they're not leading anything. Participation is what's required. Because well, well, you large, see, that large, is going to be a
2: first challenge right there. Yeah, but mm. large,
0: large chunks of black and brown people already understand because they are vulnerable already. Yes. We understand that charge. What we need, though, is a, a, a good enough percentage of white people in order to shift and move the country in a particular direction. That's what's necessary. And that's the same thing even with France, right? They have to look at the economic conditions within their own country and the things that's frustrating them and make the right choice. Come, not even the right choice, but make the right decision about the cause. Mm -hmm. The causes are what people get wrong. And therefore they choose the poor solution. Same thing with the Brits in Brexit. Oh, it was all the immigrants. You know, the systems were overwhelmed. And da, 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 da. I mean, I literally was at a party and somebody told me that she was for Brexit and then she wanted to tell me why and she wanted to make it be about um, access and resources and all of that. And I was like, no, honey, you bought Brexit was offered as a racist solution. You know, if there is going to be any other kind of potential gain that comes out of it, it'll be accidental. <laughs> You know? mm-hmm. Well, and it's the same I mean, thing with Le Pen, like that's a racist solution that she's offering for things that are real and fundamental that that go way beyond immigration.
2: But I mean, as we're saying all of this, i just I just find the irony of the situation so <laughs> hilarious because um, as you two Jamaicans would appreciate, um there's a Jamaican poet Louise Bennett, and she has a poem called "Colonization in Reverse." Yeah. and this is particularly what's happening here, that I think a lot of these countries, Great Britain, France, and America, they have to reckon with the fact that historically what is happening to them is that mm-hmm. you, is what you have done to the globe. You yeah. have gone out and globally done this. These people are here not because something intuitive and something magical is here. These people are here because of your policies. Your policies that you have set in place hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. So, if you want this to be fixed, you basically have you did this to this country for economic enrichment. You have to fix the situation in an economic solution, and in fact, stop fucking over these countries and didn't give these people back what belongs to them. They're coming for what is, they're coming for payment, and they're not even asking for the whole big shebang. They're just asking for work, basic rights, work. Yeah. <laughs> oh they're not even coming for your thrones they're not even coming for your kingdom they're asking they just want health care well, well, give well, them exactly. healthcare. care <laughs> and they, they want will, a job oh, mercy. they want jobs wow all right
0: this was a, this is a lot
2: well, that
1: was it was a lot it was it was almost too much uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy now i'm depressed oh, I'm gosh not, I just have to say, I feel like we talked and went all the way around. I mean, I feel like we touched all the parts of the elephant that we already knew were there. Yep,
0: Of course we did. but we but the one thing we knew though, Chris, and the thing that we realized was that racism, sexism, and all the other isms, they were symptom of something deeper, right? They're symptomatic mm-hmm. of deeper issues, but those are cosmetics. Like, those are the, th- those are the exactly. means, means that people use to get you to collude in a system that's about taking more and more away from you. Mm-hmm. So you as a woman that buys into this argument that this world is constructed in a certain way, you've, co- you've participated in the loss of your own power. As, I, as you see with these women, that anyone that colluded with Trump, you participated in the loss of more and more power for you as a woman. Same thing with people of color. So we have to not be distracted by the isms. We have to recognize, yes, the isms are part of the society, but they're being manipulated mm-hmm. to get us all to agree to an economic state where we're essentially going to be enslaved.
2: Minimally, at and their construction, their economic constructions for your devaluement, and they're yeah. not natural nope. classification. So I think that's we 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 have to that have to be drummed in out of our heads, and us not to be sidetracked by a lot of the the, the, the rhetoric out there because it, it's we're not getting anywhere. Nope, and the system we're just losing, continues. Actually. To do, we're actually yeah, yeah we're losing. <laughs> Well,
1: I'm i am going to definitely think about all this stuff. I th- I'm just going to – I just. we have to figure out a way to involve white people in a movement that
2: – okay. Well, I know we have to end this, but I just have more to say. Mm-hmm. Put it in, I, I tell you what, whatever we do, we got to put it in coffee or uh, put it yeah. in, a, in a coffee cup <laughs> and put it in a <laughs> coffee. Ah! Yeah, yeah. You're a mess.
1: All right, let's move into recommendations, which is something that you see, heard, or experience that you think other people should see, hear, or experience. Cordell, you are a very special
2: guest, so you go first. Just for those who love Googling, please Google $800 juicer out there, and you would see how fucked up our economy is. So just, <laughs> just Google $800 juicer and... That's all I'm going to say for, like, mini media recognition. It's a hilarious story of how people invested, like, $100 million, $120 million into a fucking juicer that was going to cost $800 and then found out that you can actually – and $8 for the juice. And you can literally squeeze the juice with your hand and get the same amount as using the $800 <laughs> juicer. This is really a thing that happened in Silicon Valley. And investors are like, how the fuck did we let this happen? <laughs> So that's really a thing that's just my media <laughs> recommendation it's a real news story it's not fake news it's actually happened anyway my real medium recommendation is a book it's called the black count glory revolution betrayal and the real count of monte Cristo." oh so it's written by it's not a historical fiction it's written by tom reese it won the Pulitzer prize i think Several years ago, 2011, but I might be wrong about the date. But anyway, it's about this. Um, in fact, the Count of Monte Cristo, written by Alexander Dumas, is, if you might not know, Alexander Dumas is actually one quarter black.
0: Black. His father I had actually, no
2: idea. I mean, seriously, his father is half black. and yeah, um,
0: he's black. Huh?
2: Alexander Dumas was the product of a slave, or maybe a freed woman, and his father, who was, in fact, a actual count. Mm-hmm. So Alexander Dumas' grandfather was actually a marquis, everything on the whole shebang. But he ran away and went to what was then Saint-Domingue, which was Haiti now, and got into a whole bunch of trouble and then produced this son. And he sold his other children. And he took this one son, Alex, and brought him to France and exposed him to all of the fine finery of um, French life. And Alexander Dumas' father died when he was four years old. And Alexander sort of had this fascination behind his father. And his father, by all accounts, met Ben Franklin, John Adams, fought against Napoleon. And he was this strapping, like, six-foot, when I said, it, it was almost like a G.I. Joe back in the day. He was this
0: mm-hmm.
2: amazing mm-hmm. fighter, etc. And everyone who met him loved him. He was educated. He was smart. He was a brilliant swordsman. Brilliant horse, rider, everything, but in fact, jealousy and got the better of his surrounding, and he was in fact in prison. So, the con of Monte Cristo is actually based on Alison O'Dumas' father. And if you consider the con of Monte Cristo, the, the main plot of it, like this man who had everything in life and then jealousy, sort of by his friends, it doesn't make much sense unless you put a racial element into it. Because, why else would you try to betray your? your white counterpart just because of the woman you want of the woman and riches, it just wouldn't necessarily, it just sort of doesn't sort of a very awkward plot. Like if you add a racial element to it, it makes far more sense as to why it's sort of this irrational hatred towards this other man. But it's a brilliant um, thing about this whole gentleman's life. And in fact, um, Alexander Dumas, his counterpart when he was writing like, um, Balzac referred to Alexander Dumas as being top black as to why he doesn't think his writing suck He thinks it's writing sucks. So it's a brilliant read. I would recommend it. And interesting you know that the corner of Monte Cristo was actually black. Okay. Trisha?
0: um I have something that you can listen to. And I listened to it this week because I was playing catch up on all of my podcasts. And it mm-hmm. was so. It's called
2: Real I- Santa's Fans.
0: not that one sorry but I have to say it was so fucking good I mean I was talking to somebody and they said that they thought this um writer this reporter was very much doing the work um that ta Coates is doing um in terms of like she was his compatriot on the other side you know, she reflected what the the, the kind of forward thinking work that was done by a woman, and it is Nicole Hannah Jones. She's a reporter, and I would recommend that you listen to the January sixteenth episode of um, NPR, and it's called "The Systematic the Systemic Segregation of Schools." You will learn so much. It is about I think it's traditionally like 40 minutes or so. It is so damn good. It is so damn good. Mm -hmm. Um, She just really, and it would really key in nicely with this episode. She just really breaks down what happens in um, schools in the United States and particularly in New York City. She talks about how schools are, continue to be segregated and this time how they're voluntarily segregated. It's a really, really, it's a really fascinating history. And I have to say, she wrote a fantastic, she's the one, Chris, that wrote that piece about trying to decide whether, where she was going to send her daughter. I think oh, I- Oh, right, the Times yeah, piece. Yes, the Times piece. That was brilliant. But this was, um, this was a follow-up to the Times piece where they interviewed her and talked to her about her entire work around um, education reform. It's masterful. She just breaks it all down, the history, in a really compelling way.
2: Highly recommend the listen. What's the name of the podcast?
0: Fresh Air? um, Fresh Air, yes. It's Fresh Air.
1: My recommendation is the documentary Strike a Pose, which I think came out two years ago. I just watched on Netflix the other day. So it's about the seven young dancers that Madonna chose back in 1990 to appear in the video for Vogue, but then also go on her blonde ambition tour. And it, it catches up with the men in that video 25 years later and interviews them about how being on tour with Madonna also being stars of the movie truth or dare, how that changed their life and the trajectory and their trajectory. And it was unexpectedly moving. I just had such a reaction to it. You know, I was 16 when that video came out and it was just around the time when my life was changing. Like when, uh, it was just around the time when I was getting comfortable in the fact that I am gay and I'm going to be gay. Like this isn't a phase. And uh, you know, Madonna for, for me at that time was really important. And when that video came out and all those dancers who are all people of color and just being so fluid and open in their movements and just, I, I can't explain, like it, it meant something to me back then. So catching up with these men, uh, now i didn 't realize how moved and emotional I would become and how connected I was to them as a gay man uh, of a certain age. And so they talk about their struggles, like all the struggles that you imagine what happens when you 're 21 and touring the world and have your own fans and have access, access, access. And it was really great if you, if you like that video, if you like the men in that video, it 's a great, great film. Anyone who's my age should absolutely watch it, but it, it's really fantastic. And I would say uh, most of them could still get it today, just <laughs> saying. <laughs> I'm just saying.
2: I mean, some of them kept extremely well. I always take your recommendations, except when it's for dentists, because I know <laughs> that, that is not really to <laughs> yeah. Hello, he no longer works here. So don't worry about <laughs> any <laughs> dentist
1: recommendations. I know. No, but absolutely see strike a pose. I think I watched that video so many times. I have every flick of everyone's finger memorized. I, it burned into my brain as sort of like this super gay, super brown, super beautiful thing. Uh and so like I would absolutely recommend seeing it. Even if you are not old enough to remember the video and have it impact on you. I am the- not? Oh, shut up. <laughs> Just <laughs> shut up with that. Please. Please. Madonna, who but even 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 if you're not, like watch the video on Vimeo or whatever, and then watch this movie because at the end of the day, it is about um it's about six men in their late forty 40- in their late forties um, trying to come to terms with being gay, trying to come to terms with Insta fame, which then goes away. It's an interesting story all on its own. See it. Strike a post. Wow. Ooh. Wow. Yep. Powerful recommendation from a Ooh. powerful guy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and
1: here I thought I was this shit
2: with my black coat.
1: No, no, no. Mine, mine was objectively better. Cordell, we want to thank you for joining us. This is so
0: great of you to come on yes
2: um, i know i am one of your biggest fans one I, biggest fan I think yeah.
0: we have to have him back to talk about one of the topics that he really wanted to chat about yes well,
1: we'll <laughs> oh, no, we, will, we will no we will have you back on and and we will, oh, we hey, will talk ooh. again i
2: know well just because um trish trisha trisha I, I would i would give trisha my um address for the check you can follow the check <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then once she once she has your address, please uh, go out by your mailbox and wait. Uh, it will show up soon. For sure we All gotta right. get paid somewhere, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a great night.
0: Night. It's
1: okay. Yeah. Bye.